0: The thing that's fascinating about the 1930s and one of the things that drew me to it is that you can see the very beginnings of all the stuff that comes out in the 40s and 50s had been in the works for long before J. Parnell Thomas started putting people on the stand in 47. This, this stuff was going on already in the 30s. The, the tensions were, were already tight and the ideology was was already driving a lot of this.
1: Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's an episode of Untold Stories Rediscovered, the long-lost Austrian silent film that predicted Hitler's rise, the forgotten Senate investigation that tried to blacklist Hollywood for hating Hitler too early, and the hard-luck ladies for whom Tinseltown meant a sad end. But first, avoid the tawdry tragedy of missing an episode of this podcast. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. Thanks. The title alone is ominous, Die Stadt ohne Juden, The City Without Jews. It's a 1924 movie, from a book written two years earlier, which could see the writing on the wall of the 20th century. A demagogue uses anti-Semitism to consolidate his power, and institutes a pogrom of his nation's Jews. The result, as depicted in a panoramic drama that shows the effect on every level of society, is a moribund country that has stripped itself of its own vibrant culture. Hans Karl Breslauer's film is basically satirical, and even it couldn't imagine the true depths of horror to come. But it hit close enough to home that a Nazi murdered the book's author, and the Nazis suppressed the film, which survived only in fragments, until a copy was found in a flea market in Paris in 2015 and restored by Film Archive Austria. Now it's out from Flickr Alley, with musical accompaniment by Donald Sosen and Alicia Spiegels, who we last spoke to about E. A. DuPont's The Ancient Law. I spoke with them in New York about scoring a film about future history.
2: There were a couple of versions of the film in collections, and the version that the the Vienna Film Archive, Film Film Archive Austria, uh, had was missing some scenes and somebody found a copy in a paris flea market as these things go which had the missing scenes but also had scenes from other films cut in stuff from an abogance film for example just with crowd scenes and so all of that material had to be gone through and edited and looking at original uh, source material to find out what was the most authentic version to actually work on and restore.
1: How did those other things get in? it? somebody just wanted to spruce it up with some extra stock footage.
2: I guess I don't. I, I mean, I don't know really the story. Of-
1: <laughs> well, let's talk about. You said that you're uh, kind of specialists in Jewish silent films at this point. How big a uh, category is that?
2: I wouldn't say that we're specialists, but we. <laughs> I mean, since since this our association started three years ago, um, these three wonderful projects have come our way, and there may be more. The, aside from the ancient law, which we talked about, um, when was that? A couple of years that ago that? now. Yeah. A couple of years ago, uh, and then city without Jews. Um, Let's, let's just talk about how that happened. Um, Cynthia Walk from the Sunrise Foundation for Education and the Arts was again instrumental in getting this film restored and also involving us to write music. So we started working on that about a year ago and finished in early February and sent it off to Flickr Alley, which released it, as you know. And then we did one live performance at the JCC San Francisco before everything was shut down. We were were supposed to have a number of performances this year, but those are getting postponed until 2021 if we're lucky. And so we'll be doing that in a variety of venues from Jewish film festivals and synagogues to mainstream motion picture palaces and archives and festivals.
1: Now, with the ancient law, I mean, that's, that's kind of a historical Jewish film. It depicts shtetl life and things like that. Uh, and he used a lot of very, you know, what people would recognize as sort of traditional sounding old Jewish music or, you know, the, the kind of fiddler on the roof era of that kind of music. This is different. I mean, it was a contemporary film when it was made, 1920s. How did you approach you know how you wanted this to sound
3: this was a an interesting problem because the film um is more fragmented in terms of the scenes and uh the narrative it doesn't uh it doesn't extend a scene at the the length that a film like the ancient law does and so musically uh we had to find a way to maintain a an arc musically that still responded to these very uh short fast shifts in the action uh and that was sort of the essential problematic Uh, in terms of the the feel of the music there is you're right there is a lot more kind of contemporary or modern classical art music feeling to it uh and less of the kind of wall-to-wall traditional yiddish klezmer music that we had in in the ancient law
2: or, or the um, classical music of the period in which the film was taking place
3: right it, the the kind of mid-19th century viennese classical music tradition waltzes and beethoven and beethoven-esque music from the in the ancient law in, in the city without Jews. it was more the music of the time the the time is contemporary with as he said when the film takes place and so the sound you know which donnie brings to it with his uh, piano compositions is much more early 20th century that being said there's uh there are deeply traditional jewish scenes in there and by the way the film is really interesting because it shows uh, in a really informed way the whole range of Jewish life. It isn't just a simple monochromatic, these are the Jews. <laughs> it, it shows the whole range from assimilated to completely, you know, orthodox. And um, that left room to bring in some really deeply traditional Jewish sounds. And so, for example, I played something which I based on cantorial music. Um, for the exile scenes, I was listening to Yesle, Cantor Yesela Rosenblatt sing a composition called Hineni, the first words of the prayer that the composition sets, um, which means here I am. And it's kind of a plea to the creator, you know, a, a, a request for an audience, help, you know, a cry for help, basically. Here I am. And uh, I analyzed the changes in the modes. Modes are like scales, but uh, non-Western music, like traditional Jewish music, has a lot more of them. We've got major and minor, and Jewish music has a, a lot more of them, although nowhere near as much, for example, as Indian music, Indian classical music. But in any case, I, I took the composition, you know, made a list of the modes that it went through, and I created something that, you know, it was, like, even more Jewish than what we did in the ancient law. And Donnie, uh, you did stuff which was, like, you know, intensely modernist and...
2: Yeah, I mean, if if... If you think about who was writing music in the 20s in in Vienna, this was now the up, the updated 60 years later than the ancient law. Now we have the um, the triumvirate of Schoenberg, Berg, and Webern. We also um, are post Mahler, or just at the tail end of Mahler, um, and any any of those sound worlds I stole from liberally. Um, in, in creating themes for the chancellor and any, anything which was not in the traditional Jewish mode.
1: Yeah, one of the points of the film is that what you lose by expelling the Jews is your popular culture or your culture in general. There's so much of what's music, fashion, theater, all those things in this movie. There's a very funny scene where uh, they basically go to burlap bags for fashion because there are no. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Jews right. doing doing high fashion anymore. Right. Um, so yeah, how do you how do you portray the contemporary music being essentially Jewish music?
2: I didn't
3: make uh, that distinction. That, that's yeah that that's a. I think that might be too broad okay. to be actually accurate because um, contemporary music, like the the jazzy scene, is african-american
2: music yeah, yeah
1: true true
2: you know but if you listen to cue number 25 which which takes place in in the fashion in the okay the fashion house and in the bakery or the, the cafe it's just it's salon music it's not jewish music per se the jews were part of the you know part of the culture read the hair with the amber eyes now uh, you got to read that book man it's just an unbelievable history of how the, the Jews were part of Europe France Ukraine Vienna and and they were you know in in Poland a third of the population was Jewish in Warsaw for example so there there wasn't this distinction in popular culture about we're gonna have we're gonna be playing Jewish music it was Viennese music by Jews. And I think Mahler is a really good example, even though he converted. He took from this world around him a little bit of Jewish music. So did Brahms, you know, the gypsy music uh, that filters into all of uh, a lot of his chamber music. You could say it's Jewish, it's gypsy music, Hungarian, whatever it is. What I ought to have done, which I didn't, is that we, when we go back at Q forty-two to the same shops which have been taken over by non-Jews, I should have made the music really horrible, but I didn't.
4: <laughs>
2: it should have sounded, should have sounded like late Schoenberg, you know. Which would have been, of course, That's that would have funny. been Jewish. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs>
1: Well, so any other parts that there was particular inspiration for what you chose to score?
3: Oh, the whole, the whole thing beginning to end. there were. Um, I need the spreadsheet. Because we just composed music to a whole other
2: film. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't want to mix it up. Film. We're, we're just looking at the film, you know, the way composers and, and music directors do and say, what do we need here? What would work here? Let's try this, let's try this. Here's, Alicia writes themes, I like themes. Uh, I, I write themes and, and we, we say, okay, here's the chancellor's theme. Some of this was improvised in the studio and then worked on afterwards. Some of it was done on paper and then recorded. So, um, And unlike ancient law, every note pretty much is written down that we're playing. Yeah, this is really fully scored.
1: Either before or after the fact. Why was Ancient Law not done that way?
3: We uh, had a more freewheeling process where we spent a few days together uh, in the studio and improvised together and bounced stuff off of each other. And there was room, you know, with the longer scenes, there was room for to stretch out ideas and to improvise. It was possible to do it. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, like different scores also come out of different circumstances. So, uh, you know, the, what we just did was our pandemic score was completely remote, Yeah, there was no <laughs> in-, in person, anything. And, um, it's, it's even more fully scored than city without Jews in a way They they're kind of getting more and more scored and less. Improvise as they go along but partly that's you know a result of uh being in different places which is interesting because it's it's a it's a a a construct it's a constriction rather um which has its pros and cons like it it places limitations on us but then it, it it forces us to do something which uh, we would have lost the opportunity to do if we had been together. You know, it just, it's a structure, a scaffolding, that just produces a different kind of music. Not better or worse, but, but different.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay, so I know the third film you're working on with a Jewish theme is called The Man Without a World for Milestone. Tell me about that.
2: It
3: is a fake silent film made in the 1990s, by a performance artist named eleanor anton who was a prominent performance artist you know mostly i think in the 60s and 70s in on the west coast and she uh made this film kind of as a love letter to her mother um it it was uh the 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 conceit is that it was made by an avant-garde uh russian filmmaker in nineteen twenty something, um, named Antonov. Her so her name's Anton. This filmmaker is a man named Antonov. Evgeny Antonov. Right, Evgeny Antonov. And uh that he was supposed to make something sentimental, but he's so political he couldn't help himself and he did something kind of more avant-garde and um so it's it was super fun, you know, to write music for this pretend silent film, which was done so well, you know, has so many of the conventions of silent film in it, and it's clever and fun and funny and- And horrifying. um, And horrifying, (laughs) you know, it's just, it's what a film should be, you know?
2: We're we're dying to hear what Eleanor thinks of it. She's 88 now. Oh, wow. And Dennis says she hasn't seen it yet. So Uh, he just sent her a link again. Uh, and she's friends with Cynthia, our patron. So, oh, okay. um, so, and it, it was released and made available when it came out and had a diff, very different organ and clarinet score by people from the coast, which, uh, I, I am really not one to comment on this, but a, a number of people felt that it didn't do the film justice. It's being restored for one thing by a milestone and it's and then of course uh we looked at the film through our eyes and put our own musical spin on it.
1: And so how do you score a faux Soviet silent with faux Soviet silent music or?
2: With with fake music. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't actual music but an incredible simulation. We just kind of hummed. We hummed and went you
3: know, it's it's interesting that the film has satiric elements to it, but in the end, I think it seemed to us it was too much to satirize something which is already a satire of something else in a way. It was like like it was better to just sink into the conceit of the film and, and you know, do it in a way earnestly. So, um, without talking about it, unconsciously made a decision that the thing was that it was this production uh, of the an artifact of the early 20th century, and that this uh, you know avant-garde filmmaker was involved, and and not to add another layer of meta-meta-meta by commenting on you know in a way that goes against what go- is happening in the film or so forth, and so forth. So we rode the waves of the film, the the uh, the sad, the horrifying, the um comic the affectionate and so forth um and we had so much fun with it donnie you should talk about the music which you wrote which was gorgeous i mean
2: the parts you well, I mean, wrote for the yeah,
3: violin were like
2: there, over the moon part of i mean for, yes first just to to reiterate what alicia said we we put ourselves in the in the place of being composers in the 20s and writing music that could have been performed and played at the time the film supposedly came out. The COVID situation put a different spin on it in terms of our working procedure, because um, we haven't seen each other since uh, February now, and we had to write all this music. And so uh, we were sending files back and forth and saying, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And I wrote stuff, Alicia wrote, an enormous amount of wonderful klezmer tunes and then i would write other other music and then took all of these jigsaw puzzle pieces and said let's put this here let's put this here
3: and Donnie developed so, so, took some of my tunes and then developed them you know like a, a he did compositional things with them which took them way beyond you know the simple klezmer melodies that they started with right head. just
2: not not just creating piano parts but taking the themes and and making them into extended pieces, changing their structure, changing the motifs in in different ways. And I should just, as an aside, we um,
3: f- debuted the uh, live performance of City Without Jews, and this is before it was the same score was released on DVD, like in the moments the midnight moments before the lockdown so that was our premiere we were supposed to spend the spring touring you know both films and boom that was the last time we saw each other was right before we went into hiding from the virus.
1: That was music by Donald Sosin and Alicia Spiegels from The City Without Jews, available now on Blu-ray and DVD from Flickr Alley. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Are you a member of the Communist Party, or
4: have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to
3: teach this committee the That's basic principles the of Americanism. That's not the question. The question is, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I am framing my answer in the only
2: way in which any American citizen can frame his answer to a question then which you, invades his, absolutely invade Then in the you deny to, you, you refuse to answer that question, is that correct?
1: That was John Howard Lawson, one of the Hollywood Ten, in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1947. Everybody knows about HUAC, which investigated and led to the blacklisting of Hollywood stars and other movie figures in the late 1940s. But relatively few know about HUAC's origins investigating other kinds of foreign influence left and right before World War II. And even fewer, it seems safe to say, know about the first congressional hearings to investigate Hollywood in 1941, conducted not in the House, but the United States Senate, and devoted not to ferreting out pro-communist leanings, but anti-fascist ones. Why would anybody be against being against fascism? Because isolationist senators believed that the producers of films about the Nazis, like The Mortal Storm, Confessions of a Nazi Spy, and Foreign Correspondent, were trying to drag America into another European war. Chris Yogurst, Assistant Professor of Communication at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and the author of From the Headlines to Hollywood, The Birth and Boom of Warner Brothers, tells the story of this first attempt to investigate Hollywood's political views in his book Hollywood Hates Hitler, Jew-baiting, Anti-Nazism, and the Senate Investigation into Warmongering in Motion Pictures, just published by the University of Mississippi Press. So this book is really about a particular Senate hearing in 1941, but as Hollywood would say, it's a story many years in the making. So it really goes back to, I mean, the moment Hitler came to power in Germany, there were efforts on both sides to influence public opinion in Los Angeles and Hollywood. So yeah, tell me about that.
0: Yeah, there, there definitely was um, a lot in the making and not just not just with Hollywood movies, but also with just the American culture. Um, you know, this goes all the way back really Really, to World War One, um, and and some of the some a lot of the veterans, you know, frustrated about that war. And once a Great Depression hits, and you've got a lot of issues with, um, you know, veterans looking for their benefits not getting them, and you have this frustration towards uh, their government. There, you have the financial implications of the Great Depression that are incredibly widespread. Um, but you also have the influx of a lot of pro-Nazi activity in the United States and really all over the United States uh, from LA to New York. And this is un- understandably on the radar of the Hollywood moguls, a lot of you know, many of whom are European immigrants, um, but a lot of other people started to notice this stuff as well. And that, that really started to uh, stoke the embers uh, of, of this underlying um, political tension. Uh, that was going on, and we saw a lot of groups pop up. You have the Friends of New Germany, the German-American Bund, the America First Committee, and all these groups would eventually, the Silver Shirts, did I mention them? Uh, There's so many of them. Uh, They they would ultimately, by the end of the decade, all be suspected, if not proven, of being pro-Nazi front groups.
1: And uh, at the same time, there's a group that acts as kind of a, I I guess you'd say, like, uh, some of the groups about racism in the South, you know, were, like, keeping an eye on what was going on, reporting to authorities, things like that.
0: Oh, the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League? Yeah, yeah, definitely. They they were, a, a lot of historians have referred to them as really a group that came together, to uh, really bridge what what they called the popular front at the time, which was this this group of a lot of disparate political beliefs that all kind of came together to oppose Nazism for very different reasons. And um, yeah, like, there, there's a like lot of what? interest. N-
1: not that there aren't plenty of choices, but right,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. Why would you oppose the Nazis? Um, oh, yeah, you had the communists that, that would go at it because they saw them as a threat, right? I mean, you have this long history of, you know, by the late 30s, early 40s, you know, Russia was, you know, against the Nazis and then for the Nazis and against the Nazis. And you have, you know, the Hitler's or the, uh, yeah, the Stalin-Hitler uh, Pact and all this. And by the late 30s, the, the communists in the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League started to uh, or people started to bow out of it because they started to re- you know they they didn't want to oppose uh, the Nazi party uh, because Stalin started to oppose them less. so that started to create issues on the ground floor of that because they were no longer united against Hitler. Um, and that's why I think you saw some of these other groups come to prominence that were uh, seemingly front green you know friends of New Germany being a really big one in the America first committee under under the guise of Patriotism. There was a lot of um, deep-seated, um, you know, some, some would say straightforward anti-Semitism, but definitely xenophobia, where there's this fear of the other, this fear of um, immigrants and what they, you know, are doing to our country. Uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of interesting saying that now. It's like history is so cyclical. <laughs> Same conversations.
1: Now, in terms of the studios, I mean Warner Brothers is really at the front of this in that they left the German market very early on, I think 34 or something like that. Yeah.
0: 33, 34. Yeah. They bailed out. They actually had one of their, one of their people running a a studio over there that was assaulted by some of Hitler's folks and they pulled out immediately. Um, And other studios followed suit slowly um, you know, that that's been a point of discussion with historians the last decade, really. You know, what, what do we make of that? And uh, there's been some good books written about that. And, you know, Warner Brothers, it makes perfect sense because they were the studio that really wore their ideology on their sleeve. And they were not afraid to say, here's where we stand. Here's here's the line we're drawing where the other studios were a little more weary, even though if they had that same ideological line, they were. You know, they put their box office first, and they're like, "Well, let's. How can we do this intelligently without losing money?" Where Warner Brothers, their their idea was, "We don't care if we lose money. We're not selling to Nazis." Yeah,
1: and it's interesting. I mean, the the studios are are definitely even when they're kind of taking it on for a long time, they're careful about it. I mean, I always think of the example of The Life of Emile Zola is clearly about the yep. Dreyfus case, which is clearly about anti-Semitism. At the same time there's only one point in the movie where you see any reference to Dreyfus being Jewish and mm-hmm. that's written on like a document. No one ever says it. Same right. thing with like They Won't Forget which is about the Leo Frank case in Atlanta and the fact that Leo Frank was was Jewish is partly why he wound up being, you know, portrayed as a criminal and ultimately lynched when he was almost certainly innocent. Uh, again, no reference to his Jewishness at all in the film. So they were kind of expecting the audience to fill in those gaps and resisting yes.
0: saying it outright. Very, very much. And there were and there were strictures in work workaround as well. I mean, you had the production code, which they had to be careful with after 34. Um, in August of 34, I believe, when that was finally implemented where there were there were strict rules about ridiculing other nations Um, and and part of the problem there is they you know as much as they wanted to go after germany and nazis that fell under this rule of you can't ridicule other nations so they had to yeah you're right i mean they had to to do this and thinly veil what the stories were actually about and hope that the audience would fill in the gaps like you said and and yeah those are great films and um, If you're thinking, I mean, the, the they won't forget is a great example, because, I mean, that's when I wrote my first book on Warner Brothers. That's when I discovered that movie. And I looked at all the all the the press coverage of the court case from the 19 teens. And, and I'm reading through it. And it's like this was the it was like the O.J. case of the 19 teens. Right. <laughs> right. And it's, it's absolutely wild. So it's like anybody in the late 30s that had been an adult for a while watching that movie would have plugged all of that in. Um, you know, it's a, you know you have to do a little more legwork today to figure that out. But I think the people in the 1930s would have been pretty quick to understand what was going on in that movie. So
1: here we are, Hollywood, you know, as we're saying, moving a bit gingerly toward covering these, uh, you know, these issues that are going on uh, really until – confessions of a nazi spy that seems like the first one in 1939 nine right. that is outright i mean i'm sure it's the first time that nazi is in the title of a, it, it, of it a is film,
0: for sure yeah
1: um and that's when the senate started or the house originally the house starts uh poking around hollywood on this the house on Un- american activities committee which will become famous several years later mm-hmm. um, poking around many different industries so tell me about that
0: yeah, well, yeah, you had the Dyes committee. Um, you had Martin Dyes, um, who's a Democrat from Texas, the very, very, very early version of HUAC. And they were looking for fascists, actually, and then also started looking for communists. And they, they dug around Hollywood already um, in the 30s. And they had um, interviewed um, I'm trying to remember. I think they interviewed B- Bogart, and I mean, they, they, they got some pretty big names. Well, yeah, there's uh,
1: that, that list of you know people they think are communists, and it's like Gable and Cagney and Betty Cagney Davis there, yep. and Shirley Temple, right. the <laughs> ultimate sleeper agent.
0: Well, and that's what's funny. That's one of the things that I, I mentioned in the book is like one of the things pointed out was that, you know, and when, with all these very real front groups for Nazis, the the Shirley Temple clubs were also figured as as this as as a well, actual well, it's a communist but I mean as a, as a front organization for you know a, a different ideology and it's like really really Shirley Temple huh <laughs> wow yeah yeah like you said what sleeper oh wow yeah and it's just it, it, but I mean you can see the, the thing that's fascinating about the 1930s and one of the things that drew me to it. Is that you can see the very beginnings of all the stuff that comes out in the 40s and 50s had been in the works for long before Jay Parnell Thomas started putting people on the stand in 47. Um, this this stuff was going on already in the 30s. the The tensions were were already tight, um, and the ideology was was already driving a lot of this, and the, the fear was was everywhere. One of the things I'm I'm always interested in. Um, is fear of popular culture. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, when you look at like censorship, which I did a little bit with my first book on Warner brothers. And I looked at, I mean, they, you know, they, their early thirties films or pre-code movies were you know, some of the films that irked the, the wannabe censors uh, more than anybody else. They're gangster films, things like that. And they their they're, they're, they're um, sexy comedies and, and musicals and all of that. and, uh, I, I started thinking about this really like throughout, you know, the entire century. And I, I think part of it is, I mean, I was in high school when Columbine happened and I remember when everybody was uh, in the news was going after, you know, this music and this video game and this movie. And I was thinking, you know, this is all the same stuff my friends and I are into and we're not violent. Um, and I feel like that stuck with me. And I, I look at the fear of popular culture throughout history in kind of maybe a similar defensive way, but this there were so many parallels to this in the '30s with the censors going after um, the 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 parent groups and these and and the religious groups going after movies because they're afraid that in the early '30s that they're afraid it's going to uh, corrupt you know the fabric of our society. It's very similar. By the time you get to the late '40s, that these anti-Nazi movies, you know, there's this similar fear that it's going to do something to our country. And that thing that they're afraid of is that it's gonna push us into this war that's raging in Europe that we don't want any part of.
1: Well, and there's an interesting point about isolationism. I mean, in theory, isolationism should be a legitimate point of view. That's a European right. war, what do we need to get into it? But it always sullies itself by bringing in an anti-Semitic aspect to it. Exactly. Uh, it seems almost inevitable. Um, and that's certainly what we see in these hearings: is that you know pretty soon there's whiffs of sneaky Jews going around plotting against America, you know, to borrow from Philip Roth. Uh, yep.
0: You know exactly.
1: It just it can't help
0: itself. It seems like you're right. I mean, and I think for a lot of people, it was it was a legitimate point of view for a while. Um, you know, when, when you look at the history of isolationism and coming out of World War One and what it did to the economy, what it did to the vets, there's legitimate arguments for it. But but you're right. this eventually gets co-opted into something else. And that's why I start my book. And w- there's two major figures that I really I, I, I use in the beginning of my beginning of my book to set the stage for what the 1930s look like. And it's Alvin York and Charles Lindbergh. And you've got these two national, international heroes. And by the end of the 1930s, they're on very different sides. You know, one is isolationist, one is interventionist. And Alvin York, the great war hero, World War I hero, staunch anti-war advocate his entire life. And uh, by the end of the 1930s, he actually, you know, here's somebody who is the, not in any way a warmonger, Who's starting to think, you know, oh, maybe maybe we need to do something in Europe because this is getting bad. And you have Lindbergh on the other side of this, who was was famous for his transcontinental flight and became this this um, you know every man's hero. That um, by the end of the '30s was was a fixture in the America First Committee uh, and was a speaker at a lot of their events. And his rhetoric got increasingly anti-Semitic, so much so that in the summer of 41, he, you know, and so, you know, summer of 41, the Nazi, you know, it's really no more secret what the Nazis are doing. And uh, he says that the greatest threat to our country is the Jewish-run media. So it's it's things like that that you really can't, and I know a lot of there's, when I was going through the very beginning stages of this, there's a lot of uh, books and articles I've seen people trying to defend, like, ah, Lindbergh was was awesome, he wasn't anti-Semitic, but uh, you just got to look at the Des Moines speech, and it's like, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like
1: a lot of guys, uh, I feel these days, you know, a- after a while, being in the media, he went crazy in the media. Right. You know, you, you got to top your last act, so uh, yep. pretty soon you end up in, in something horrific. Um, all right, well, let's talk about this uh, the Senate committee under a Senator named Gerald Nye, um, that wound up, you know, taking the headlines through most of 1941, although eventually overshadowed by other events and, uh, um, you know, really went after Hollywood and, and on what basis they went after Hollywood for having this sort of pro interventionist, uh, um, prejudice that they were sneaking into the American popular culture.
0: Right. Well, and that's, that's, what's interesting. Cause I mean, you, you know, I went into this looking for some kind of bedrock they were building this on and it's really not there. Um, and that's why initially I was wondering, you know, this whole thing started as a journal article and I was, you know, and then the university press of Mississippi approached me at a conference and asked me if I could do it as a book. So I, did a little bit more digging and and asked some senior colleagues and uh, they said this is a story worth telling. Nye, uh, yeah, he was, when you look at his speeches leading up to this, I mean, he he famously referred to Hollywood as as the studios as gigantic engines of propaganda. So this is something that he made no ifs, ands, or buts that he thought this was, but he never really defined propaganda. He couldn't really define what was wrong with the movies. But he did stir up enough fear uh, and enough interest, um, and in true, you know, as a good political operative, he was able to get this this kind of investigation uh, shoehorned into the Interstate Commerce Committee. So this wasn't even like its own thing. He just he got Burton K. Wheeler, uh, Democrat from Montana, was running the Interstate Commerce Committee, and he got friendly with him and was able to get this subcommittee put together to take a look at. Uh, Hollywood for both uh, propaganda, but also, and something that has become relevant again, um, the monopolistic practices in Hollywood. So um, this is also a very early version of them trying to probe Hollywood into what would eventually become the Paramount Consent Decrees, uh, which have just been revoked after decades. Um, There's been a lot of articles about that, but this was an early version of them trying trying to pin Hollywood as a monopoly as well. But as you will see throughout uh, the investigation, none of these senators actually know anything about how the Hollywood business works.
1: Yeah. I mean, these senators over the course of the hearing prove that they're not exactly the sharpest tools in the shed. <laughs> right. they, uh, you know, they don't actually see the movies. People keep asking, well, did you see you know, The Man I Married? Did you see Foreign mm-hmm. Correspondent? No, I didn't see any of them. Um, right. <laughs> they, and they don't. They don't seem to know how Hollywood works. I mean, yeah, the monopoly thing is kind of an odd thing. I guess they're trying to prove that you couldn't make anything but an anti-Nazi picture in Hollywood. But of course. People made lots of things that had no political content whatsoever. So yeah, it's, it was it's hard. It was hard for me throughout to really understand what they were going after. Right. Uh, and you know, <laughs> as a result, they just sucker punched themselves over the course of the hearings over and over.
0: They they really did, and um, and and Hollywood brilliantly defended themselves. And I think it, once it got to like Nicholas Skank, I mean, he did a really good defense of their practices. And, and I think it's it's something that historians should look at, his testimony, because it's a really good explanation uh, of how things worked at the time. But what what's particularly hilarious about the, the, the Senate committee, the subcommittee, is that they were, yeah, they were undone by some of their own idiocy, but they were also undone by one of their own. It was it was Ernest McFarland who kept asking questions um, that a good defense would have asked. Um, but that's, that's why I think that's one of the important things about this uh, and what what backfired in this investigation was that they thought they could just build on this fear and steamroll Hollywood. And when Hollywood got Wendell Wilkie, a former presidential candidate, to defend them, um, they muzzled him because, this, of course, this wasn't like a traditional court case. So they said, you know, you can't cross-examine everybody, but you can be in the room. Uh, Ernest McFarlane, who was a lawyer himself from Arizona and a junior senator that they put on there just to kind of fill space. They thought he would just be quiet and just kind of follow along. Um, being a good lawyer, he started asking all these questions and, and ask, actually asking Nye, like what, what makes this propagandistic? What is propaganda? Like, and like you said before, have you seen the man I married? Have you seen all these movies? Um, because he came at it honestly, he's, his response is, I don't, I don't know a lot about movies. So can you help me out fill in some of these gaps? And they couldn't even do it.
1: Well, let's talk about some of the people who they called up. Um, let's start with uh, John T. Flynn. Who was he? Uh,
0: Flynn is an interesting, and, and somebody that I'm still, you know, putting this book together, I, you know, I've I learned so much, you know enough about him to to try to contextualize him in this. But this is somebody that I did not expect to continue being on my mind after I wrote the book. So Flynn, Flynn you know, I, I keep thinking, you know, I keep seeing things in the news today, and I keep thinking of Flynn, you know, anytime like Roger Stone comes up or some of these people, you know, these, these fixers, these kind of behind the scenes operators um, that aren't necessarily politicians, but they seem to want be the ones that have all the connections. He's one of those kinds of guys. And He's the one that, as the investigation comes out, when when Senator and I would say, well, you know, I got I got good information from you know trusted people. Flynn is one of his trusted contacts who apparently has connections in Hollywood. I, obviously, those connections are not very good. But Flynn is is basically he's a journalist. He's very much even he identifies himself as a propagandist in the hearings um, where where McFarland then hammers him like, well, you only you know don't like propaganda, you disagree with them. Uh, but he's a journalist, he's written some books, he was chairman of, uh, and at the time of, of this hearing, he was the chairman, I think, of the New York Division of the America First Committee, so he was plugged into all of that. Yeah, they put him up thinking he would he would drop uh, some bombshells, and yeah, yeah he really didn't. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, another one, and I just heard of this, Character not too long ago, but I guess he was a big deal in his day. It's Jimmy Fiddler. He was a gossip columnist on par with like Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons. Pretty obviously someone who could be bought, but at the same time, somebody that, you know, liked to really spill the dirt, you know, a little more, uh, someone who's more feared. By the industry as a whole, than maybe Parsons and Hopper would, just because he was ready to go there with the dirt. So, yeah. what did they bring him in to find out?
0: Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great description of him. Yeah, he was very much you know a gossip monger, somebody who was feared. I, I agree. I think he was very much, and I didn't know much about him until I did this research either. Um, but you, but you're right. This is somebody who I, I get the feeling that he was miffed that his acting career never took off because he, he tried to get into acting. Then he was a press agent and then he got into, into the media and then he just hammered Hollywood for the rest of his life. Um, kind of similar to uh, Billy Wilkerson trying to get into, wanted to be a studio mogul that didn't happen. So he created the Hollywood reporter to hammer Hollywood. Interestingly, they wanted to bring Wilkerson in and they never did. And that would have been some interesting fireworks. Um, but Fiddler, yeah, he, he had a, a history of hammering Hollywood. Um, but he, so they thought he would have all this dirt, and again, he just didn't, he didn't have it. And they they ended up discussing uh, uh, some of the dirt actually that fell back on him in, in terms of you know, this potentially being bought. Um, you know how you would, you know, the problems with how he would review films um, and the issues the studios had with with how he reviewed them. I mean, kind of an early, you know, one, two, three, four star kind of a thing. I think he called them bells. Um, and he also was a bit of a conflict of interest. He owned stock in some of the studios as well. (laughs) So a lot of this came out. So it just really, it all backfired on him and he tried really hard to defend himself and his platform. Um, but it just, it did not work. I I suspect that Shirley Temple got to him and silenced him, but, uh, uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right. So then we get, yeah, as you said, Nick, Nicholas Skank. Uh, testifies at first he kind of I felt like his testimony seemed a bit befuddled in that they're asking him about you know which studios he has control over mm-hmm. and he has these interlocking directorships or whatever uh, and he kind of he, he seemed disingenuous about not really he, knowing what his own for sure. control was. But he eventually, you know, as you say, I mean, really gives a vivid picture of how Hollywood works and why it doesn't work to just get across points, you know, specific political points of view.
0: I was surprised when I started reading his testimony because it's it's kind of all over the place, and he, see, yeah, at first it almost does seem like he doesn't know what he's talking about. But at the same time, they're asking him really vague questions, and here's the guy. So, I mean, to clarify, he was the president of Lowe's. Um, which, you know, you had MGM and it was just the biggest mammoth uh, in the studio system of the day. So he was overseeing tons of companies, tons of, you know, side production companies, all this kind of stuff. So when he couldn't name them off verbatim, some of the senators thought, aha, we got you. You know, you don't even know what you're doing. Um, but these are the things he he's not running the day to day of. But he once it got into um, the discussion of monopoly and competition, he could speak in great detail about his days running theaters and theater chains and, and working with them and, and discussing how competition works and the star-making process. Even with, even with studios owning theaters, the majority of the studios still didn't own a lot of theaters. It was mostly, I think it was Paramount. They seemed kind of befuddled by that, where they kind of undid, you know, they the senator set up this, this picture of Hollywood as being this kind of, Behind closed doors, Monopoly, and the way Skank described it, it's all. It was almost like they had no idea, and he, <laughs> you know, and they had learned all of this for the first time. And I think it was around the same time that uh, I think the Film Daily put out a poll. So they had polled, I think it was 113 critics uh, about this investigation. So around the same time that that Nicholas Skank was was testifying, uh, all 113 national. Uh, critics opposed the the investigation and said that the movies aren't dangerous. Skank comes in and now it's the, he's the first of the people from Hollywood testifying. Um, so it really couldn't have been timed better from the film daily to put this out nationally. That you look, even the critics are you know that are you know, the, the it's their job to watch all these films. are saying we don't need to be afraid of these things.
1: Yeah, and that's um, I think one of the things that that kind of put the uh, the committee on the run by that point it's just the media was so hostile to it and I think they generally accepted Hollywood's idea that if you know you can boss the movies around next it'll be books and newspapers and Mm -hmm. that they should you know the movies should have the same rights as these other things and the movies in turn i mean one of the the failures that they made was going after so many movies that were based on existing material so you could say well you know this is from a story that was in the saturday evening post are you going to shut down the saturday evening post right
0: so (laughs) you're right i mean they uh, yeah, and that came up, started to come up a lot. Like, why don't you go after the source material, right? I mean, like the Mortal Storm, we mentioned that before. Right? That's based on a book. Um, and when Harry Warner comes out, you know, he talks about how you know Confessions of a Nazi Spy. That was a real thing that happened. That the FBI got into. It was a court case, and it's like they just, as they did for that whole decade or so, they were ripping from the headlines. Yeah. Um, but one of the things Nye brought up early on, which actually he was, it, I was impressed with. It was the only time I was impressed with his research, is that he. And and he if had he hammered this harder he probably could have made more ground um, because there was a lot of talk of free speech uh, in this in this hearing and uh, one of the things Nye dug up was uh, what happened after um, Birth of a Nation came out in 1915 and how it was found um, in the Mutual versus Ohio case that movies were not protected free speech so he and and he mentions it. And then lets it go. And I think if he hammered that harder, he actually could have. I am mean, glad he didn't because I'm, I, am you know, I didn't want to see him get any more credit. But that was actually really a really smart play that he didn't push uh, harder, um, because with all the all the talk of, uh, like I said before, all the talk of freedom of speech, um, that w- that was actually he was actually correct there. Um but he, by that time, he was—he was, I think he already realized he'd been busted. Now he's just trying to figure out how to see this to the end.
1: Right. Well, and then um, the one that you say particularly just really did a great job on the stand was Harry Warner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we always only hear about Jack, but as one of the Warner Brothers, he really made a case for why, you know, Hollywood should be had, had the freedom to address these issues of the day.
0: Mm hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Harry Warner is. And that's really wh- how I came into this book. My first book that I wrote uh, called From the Headlines to Hollywood is about how Warner Brothers kind of solidified their headline. um you know, driven production policies. And through that research, I came into Harry Warner's testimony. It was, like, oh my God. And then my idea was my next book is going to be a biography of Harry Warner turned <laughs> into be the Senate investigation. And now my, my book after this actually is going to be a biography of the Warner brothers, where I want to feature Harry a lot more because he's, like you said, we hear about Jack constantly and and for good reason. I mean, he's one who put himself out there. He garnered the headlines, um, but a much you know in a much quieter way harry was you know the polar opposite and incredibly effective and he uh was a very eloquent speaker he gave a lot of a lot of speeches um leading up to the investigation i mean in in the late 30s he he would have talks at his house um there, there was a book uh written uh called common ground about how you know different religions can find common ground um in this you know, political polar, politically polarized climate. And he had a bunch of studio bosses and major players in Hollywood over to his house just to talk about it. Um, so he's very plugged in. And he, he let's see, there was one, two, three, four, five people, be- or six people before him. So And he'd been there every day and he'd watched this. So he knew, the second he took the stand, he said, look, you're not gonna say anything until I'm done reading this statement. And he commanded... Uh, the complete control of that room. And he read a statement of how the Warner Brothers became uh, successful, what they did, how it connected to the American dream and all this kind of stuff and really just justified himself and therefore the entire industry in front of the committee. And and the best thing about that, one of my favorite things from this whole investigation is that he pulls out a, 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 a note that they got after Confessions of a Nazi Spy came out and he said, "Here's something we got from Gerald Nye uh, after the movie came out, and you told us how much you loved the movie." Uh, and the guy's face went beat red, and it was like at that point, it might everyone might as well have just went home. They continued after that, but it was like, you know, this whole thing started with Nye not seeing the movies, and then Harry Warner produces this this uh, telegram from from the senator telling them how much he loved Confessions of a Nazi Spy, which you know, a movie he's trying to claim it's so dangerous two years later.
1: So, yeah, basically that's the end of it. It uh, it sort of continues as a fight in the press for the next couple of months and then Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. happens. And at that point, it's interesting to me, Hollywood kind of reverses its position entirely. I mean, after saying that they were, you know, they were led by the popularity of this material. People were reading Mortal Storm. So we made a movie about right. out of it. Now they're, they're fully on board with, you know, it's our job to influence the public, to you know, understand the war effort and and support it and all of that. So everybody's on on the other side
0: by the end of this yeah, thing. It, it's amazing how much everything switched. I mean, yeah, you have Pearl Harbor, and then you have you know the Office of War Information creates the Bureau of Motion Pictures, and now um, this is a whole a whole other thing. But um, you know, it's 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 surprising, but on another level. It's not because you had one of the things that also plays a factor here in this, in the ideological tensions leading up to the investigation, just in the culture at large, the American culture, uh, was uh, FDR and his, some of his policies and, and why they were divisive. And And the thing that I kept coming back to was his Lend-Lease bill. And by the late 1930s, after Knocked, right, the Night of Broken Glass, once it was in the news that uh, Nazis were raiding Jewish homes and they were taking away their businesses and all this kind of stuff, uh, FDR was able to put in uh, this bill that basically said, we we can give Great Britain uh, all the aid possible except for boots on the ground. So we will give them weaponry, we will give them planes, we will give them everything we can except for people that was it. Was also pretty divisive. This is this is where the isolation, you know, it was once that came through the isolationist and interventionist tension notched up again. It was a smart way to do it, saying here we we recognize what's going on over there, uh, and we want to help, but we also understand that there are people here that don't want us in a conflict. So here's what we can do. But of course, by the time Pearl Harbor happens, that. Completely changes everybody's mind. I mean, it's, you know, in in this, this day and age, you know, we can compare it to, it's really like our uh, 9-11, you know, was our Pearl Harbor moment where it was like this whole nation was taken aback. And it's like, what do we do now? And everyone gets so mad. And, and, you know, there was that strange unity for a little while. Uh, after that. And it was similar in 1941 where, you know, everyone just got behind this and and it wasn't just the film industry. It was it was every industry.
1: Well, yeah, you even have uh, John Flynn saying that they should disband America first at that point.
0: Right. Yeah. And some of these these people actually start shifting as well. It's interesting to see that. I mean, you can see how it affected, you know, people that might have been on one side of something for a decade uh, after Pearl Harbor changed their tune. Mm And I think it's important to note that, too, because it also shows us, you know, we're living in another era that's you know, incredibly polarized. It can show us that, you know, it's OK to change your mind. It's OK to, to be influenced by an event.
1: So how did this lead to HUAC um, after the war, you know, going from investigating fascists or anti-fascists uh, before the war to investigating communists after the war?
0: Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's, I I think it still stems back to the fear of popular culture. So again, you know, in the early thirties, the fear was, you know, these movies are going to corrupt the youth. And then, you know, by the late thirties, early forties, we have the the fear that movies are going to push us into war. After world war II, the next big fear, uh, was communism. So you had a lot of talk about, um, communists in the arts and, you know, going all the way back to, you know, the theater in New York and all this all this kind of stuff, um, all the way to Hollywood. So it was it was a logical place for, for HUAC to look given their mindset, uh, even though with with all of the uh actual uh Soviet espionage going on in our country, none of it was in Hollywood. And that, that's one of the things that kind of gets conflated there that some people will still um connect McCarthy with HUAC, and of course these were two very different things, and McCarthy didn't really uh, believe in, you know, as, as wrong as he was and everywhere he was pointing. He actually wasn't pointing to Hollywood. Um, there were other people doing that instead, but, but I think it all ultimately stems back to this fear uh, of influence, and I think one of the things that, that uh, I think it was uh, uh, Bennett Champ Clark, so he was the one who testified on the second day of the Senate investigation, it came out that By the end of reading that testimony, I figure this guy's just jealous because he actually says in there that he he doesn't feel that the movies should have as much say or sway as he says they do, because this Hollywood studios are not elected officials. So there was like this jealousy that you have this influence and you can reach these people. And, you know, he even says, like, I don't show up in enough newsreels and all this kind of stuff. So he just (laughs) kind of comes off as this this jealous this jealous guy, you know, person jealous of their platform. And I feel like there was some of that still percolating uh, by the late 1940s where they were just, they were, they were frustrated that some of these writers, and they're also overstating their influence too. I mean, you look at some of the movies that were accused of being, you know, propagandistic uh, in the forties, you know, when you watch them, it's, it's like, no, nah, not really. You know, it's the same thing where you look at the movies from the 41 investigation, you can yeah, no, I remember it thinking not, that about
1: uh Adventures of Robin Hood. You know, if you right. if you watch that and you identify with King John and Sir Guy of Gisborne, that's your problem. Right. That's not <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, but but he's not wrong. I mean, it was a new power in the cultural landscape of the country that uh you know was huge, was virtually universal. He was onto something. It just was a very poorly run uh, attempt to to counter it, so:
0: <laughs> Right, right. you're right. He was not wrong, um, but he again, I think they you know they had some fears that were understandable, some fears that were not so understandable, but I think their their actions, uh, pretty much from beginning to end were all misplaced. And they could have done this very differently and created a conversation around it. But instead, they looked, you know, they, they kind of came off like a bunch of ignorant, spoiled brats just kind of going after, you know, some people they they thought had something that they didn't deserve. Um, and, and there's some things that could have happened. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mentioned how Wilkerson, they talked about bringing him in. They also talked about, they also threatened to bring in Charlie Chaplin. Uh, and I can't imagine uh, the fireworks had Chaplin came in and he would have ran circles around these senators, <laughs> uh, would have been great. Because they mentioned the great dictator multiple times throughout the testimonies, but the, the response was always the same. And this is where you get that, that you, where you you see the xenophobia, you scratch it a little bit and they'll say like, oh yeah, that was a great film. You know, Chaplin's a great artist. He wasn't born here though, right? Yeah, he's not from here. Um, and they, they always have to clarify when someone's not from here and, and you know, not born in America. And they, they do that enough that you you know when you read through the whole testimony you, you you know by the end you're you're you can't forget that you you see where their where their angle really is
4: we have seen the american motion picture become foremost in all the world
1: We've seen it reflect our civilization throughout the rest of the world, the aims and the aspirations and the ideals of a free people
4: and of freedom itself. The motion picture industry has utilized its vast resources, resources of talent and facilities, in a sincere effort to help the people of the hemisphere to come to know each other.
1: Hollywood Hates Hitler, Jew-baiting, Anti-Nazism, and the Senate Investigation into War-Mongering in Motion Pictures by Chris Yogerst is out now from the University of Mississippi Press. A link for it will be in the show post at nidreville.com. We have an inexhaustible hunger for the fantasy that movie actors sell on the screen and we seem to have an equal hunger for the reality behind the fantasy. Laura Wagner writes book reviews and career articles for classic images and films of the Golden Age. And often, they're happy stories of people who found satisfaction in their careers, marriages, and lives. And then, there are those who didn't. 23 stories of sad ends in Hollywood are told in her new book, Hollywood's Hard Luck Ladies, 23 Actresses Who Suffered Early Deaths, Accidents, Missteps, Illnesses, and Tragedies, which came out earlier this year from McFarland. She was also the subject of a tribute in September's Classic Images, marking 25 years of contributing to the magazine. I spoke with Laura Wagner recently in New York.
5: September will be my 25th year wow, of Classic Images, which... It's pretty scary. It's half my life. Yeah. <laughs> I started off writing articles, and then in 2001, I became book reviewer, uh, taking over for Anthony Slide, which was very daunting. And <laughs> I don't believe I've ever taken over for him because, you know, he was he's a scholar. I'm not a scholar. You know, I'm a movie fan that became a writer, basically. Um, and I have several columns. Uh, I have... Overlooked in Hollywood, in films of the golden age, I have the call sheet in classic images, I have character corner in classic images, I write about obscure actors and actresses, which is basically what Hollywood hard luck ladies is.
1: Right, and that's what I associate you with, particularly these life stories of people who are not famous, they might have one or two roles of note, uh, but often have stories that don't go particularly well for him. I mean, it's kind of a uh, reminder of how Hollywood, you know, what the reality of Hollywood is.
5: Well, you know, today I was interviewing um, the son of actress Whitney Bourne. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. No. She had a brief career in the 30s. She was in Flight from Glory with Chester Morris. She was a B-movie actress, but she was a blue blood. She was a a socialite that became an actress. And she left for marriage, and she had a very happy life. And I I commented to uh, her son, I said, if she hadn't left, she would have been, you know, troubled. She would have been an alcoholic. She would have had a terrible life, and he agreed. She was not ambitious. She just, she did her little, you know, movies, and then she just moved on to the Red Cross. She had a very interesting life. She worked for the Red Cross during World War II, and and she she um, was a Broadway angel. She did all these different things in her life. Wall Street, and but Hollywood, she left it behind, and she was fine. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, this book is about people who are not Fine, by and large. Um, let's start with the very first one in the book, just to kind of give an example of what this is like. It's Lynn Baggett, who is not particularly well-remembered, although it turns out I just watched her in The Mob with Broderick Crawford recently. Um,
5: very good actress.
1: But what she mainly became known for was being Mrs. Sam Spiegel.
5: Yes, and, you know, he doesn't come across very well. No. Um, <laughs> when... You know, I mean, he he didn't like how she acted, but, I mean, this guy was just, he was half her, you know, he was so much older than she was, and he had a lot of money, um, but he helped her become what she became, which was an alcoholic, drug, you know, addicted, troubled person, and he blamed her for the whole thing, but it was, you know, it was it was him too and he cheated on her and it's well she cheated on him too but yeah <laughs> trying to look at it in her point of view <laughs> but um she just the alcohol was you know she was in a car accident where she killed a child yeah uh, which did which affected her for the rest of her short life um I, she could have been a really good character actress, I think, if she had maybe never met Sam Spiegel. You know, I mean, have you? You've seen her in the Emma Costello movie, The Time of Their Lives, right?
1: Actually, I haven't seen that. I've seen her in DoA and in and The Mob.
5: Well, she's great in DoA. She's also really good in Evan Costello, the Emma Costello movie, which is my favorite of the um, of their movies. Yeah, she plays one of the girlfriend of John Shelton okay and uh that's, yeah John Shelton uh, now 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 you got me confused <laughs>
1: oh. of of whatever generic good looking guy is in the picture,
5: yeah, there's somebody in there, I've seen it like a million times, I can't even remember what the uh yeah, it is John sheldon, so um no she ha- she she had a really good um screen persona, and it uh didn't help her,
4: yeah.
1: Right, and as you say, she came to a pretty early end.
5: There's a story where she got caught in her bed. I mean, it just doesn't even make sense, some of these things. Yeah. And they're all in the paper. You know, I love how they say, you know, you've heard this before. Um, you know, uh, back then, you know, in Hollywood, they kept everything out of the paper. No. Um, <laughs> you know, they they protected their their contract players, No, they didn't. They're mostly, they're... There are things in the paper where you go, oh, my God, really? (laughs) They put that in there? Dick Ferrand tried to choke his wife? What? Right. I mean...
4: (laughs)
1: Well, I I, I think it's worth pointing out that you tell these stories with relish. So what is it that draws draws you to these stories? I feel bad
5: for them. I really do. I am very sympathetic to them, I think. I think. Because I feel sorry for all of them. Writing this book was a very... Uh, emotionally draining experience because it was like every day like a bad story every day just some bad thing happened to these poor ladies and I do feel sorry for them I mean it is gold the stuff that I'm writing about I call it gold but I do feel bad and I wish it 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 hadn't happened to them but it did I'm going to write about it and at least it's true you know I'm not making it up which you can't make this stuff up yeah I mean, you know, being caught in a bed <laughs> yeah, yeah. for days and, and being sent to the hospital because you're starving, you know, I you can't make that up. I mean, Kenneth Anger could never make this stuff up.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and some of the stories, I mean, I, there were two in particular I thought were interesting because, I mean, basically they were bipolar in an age when you were not diagnosed or treated for that particularly well. You at best you self-medicated with alcohol and two like that. There was Mary Castle who oh. had the misfortune of looking too much like Rita Hayworth, which made it hard for her to build a star career. And then the other one who I really like and has a, a definite place in film history is Mae Clark, who of course is in both Frankenstein and public enemy is the woman who gets a face full of grapefruit. And, You know, it's it's quite good. Really, one of the best performances of that period in Waterloo Bridge, the original version of that, very empathetic performance. But, yeah, bipolar and just seems to have been sort of, you know, a a too tight wire most of the time. uh, And not helped
5: by shock treatments, especially in an era where they probably didn't understand how to do that. You know what I mean? Right. I mean nowadays they they measure out the shock treatment, but back then, I mean, they're turning on the juice probably, and just hoping she'll be okay, which she wasn't, and then her hair started falling out, and it became brittle because of all the shock treatments. I mean no wonder you know, no wonder that she had trouble all her life yeah I'm sure the the, the shock treatment did not help. They just didn't understand what was wrong with her. They kept saying that she was high-strung. You know, she she was, uh, you know, too much work. I mean, yeah, she was working a lot. Yeah, no, but... the
1: hours in old Hollywood are, are pretty appalling sometimes. I mean, you read something about Fay Ray shooting King Kong during the day and most dangerous game at night, and in both of them she's running around a jungle set. I mean, how do you do that for 20 hours a day?
5: Oh, well, I mean, I don't think Fay Ray ever... <laughs> she didn't crack well, up. I never heard anything about say, Ray. Yeah. But obviously, she handled it better than you know. Right. Mae May Clark.
1: But yeah, not everyone's going to handle it as well. Um, another really interesting one, I thought, in someone we all know. One movie she's in, but don't really know a lot about her, and that's Dorothy Common Gore, who of course is Susan Alexander Kane in Citizen Kane. Um, her career suffered simply from the fact that she. Spoke too frankly. <laughs> she told she told people off when she felt like it, and that did her no good.
5: Well, they like to say that um, uh, William Randolph Hearst blacklisted her. I, I don't know if that's true. It might be to some extent, but she was turning down roles too. She was a very difficult person. She just—I I don't know. She was a she was a B movie actress before that, uh, Citizen Kane, and as Linda Winters. And she should have been glad that she was like getting some kind of you know press because of Citizen Kane. But she decided, oh well, you know I'm better than these movies that RKO wants me to do. So I'm just going to turn down everything, yeah, everything. <laughs> and that does not help you. And, if, and when you tell when you tell like um, you know a studio boss, you know call them names. Which I, I won't say what she called him, but um, that's not going to give you too many friends. And that was in the 40s. Then the 50s comes around, and she's called a communist when it was really... Well, I mean, she I don't know if she actually was a communist, but she, she had the ideas back then that they thought were communistic. Right. So, and her husband, again... This seems to be a running theme. The husbands were, you know, using that stuff against her to get the kids away from her. So it was a mess. I mean, she was she was arrested for prostitution, which she said was a setup. I mean, what a life.
4: Yeah, yeah.
5: And she was a good actress, but she ruined she she ruined it. In, I think in the 40s, and then it just got worse. From
1: there. Right. I mean, there's really nothing that ever truly capitalized on Citizen Kane
5: in her career.
1: So she's, she's kind of a one, a one movie actress. Although I have actually seen Prison Train, which she made before Kane.
5: I like that so, movie. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, it's it's one of those really low budget bees that nevertheless has a good reputation. So.
5: Well, you know, she did the hairy ape. Well, okay, so she turns down all these different roles. Oh, it's not good enough. So she picks the hairy ape as her follow-up, and it's a supporting part. They were going to give her all these leads, and they she turns them all down, and then she takes the hairy ape. Oh, boy.
1: Which is, I should point <laughs> out, is, is Eugene O'Neill and does not have George Zuko as a, as a mad scientist in it
5: <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's
1: true. so it 's not quite quite as much of a come down as it might seem, but uh, all right, so another one like that, who really couldn 't capitalize on her uh, breakthrough roles uh, is Charlotte Henry, who oh. played in as as a young woman played Alice in Alice in Wonderland, the bizarre one with w c fields and Edward Everett Horton and people. And then um, she was also in what we now call uh, *March of the Wooden Soldiers*, *Babes in Toyland* with Laurel and Hardy, and then could never get out of having been in those movies as a, as a kid actress.
5: And she wasn't even a kid,
1: right? She was like twenty-one she, at the time. They anyway. kept
5: seeing her as a child because in in *Alice in Wonderland*, remember in the beginning, um, they made her small. Well, not small, but they, they made the, the set, the sets were bigger so she looked like a child. And so everyone thought she was a child, and she wasn't. I, I feel sorry for her. I mean, she had such a hard time trying to uh, find work, and she became an extra. Uh, it's it's very, I, see, I really feel sorry for all of these actresses. I yeah. really do. I mean, I don't like, ha, 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 ha. I can't, believe, yeah, this is great. I mean, it is great, some of it, when you have to write about it. But then you start thinking, you know, these poor ladies, you know, they didn't deserve this. You know, it's 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 sad, you know. And she she took to stripping. And then she's dressed up as Alice in Wonderland while she does it. That's even worse.
1: Oh, that's creepy.
5: <laughs> it is creepy. <laughs> if it was Bo Peep, we could then use the joke, go, Peep. Yeah yeah <laughs> go beep.
1: uh you're just waiting to use that one weren't you um all right let's let's talk about uh, uh i don't know how you say it honestly mayo metho method how do you say your name it's
5: well i mean i've heard that it's mayo metho so that's what i say
1: okay mayo metho better known as mrs humphrey bogart from the mid-30s to the mid-40s something like that um I thought that was a really interesting story. I've always just heard it in terms of, you know, they both get drunk and they knock each other around. They were the battling Bogarts. Um, you portray it as she really goaded him to upgrade his career and to push for, to escape being the guy who gets gunned down by Jimmy Cagney toward the end and become uh, a star in his own right and that it was the sort of energy and antagonism of their tendentious relationship that made Bogart in that era, you know, that that got him to lift himself to that next level and demand that out of Warner Brothers and so on. Uh, And it did her no particular good. So, yeah.
5: Well, she loved him. Um, These women do really crazy things for their men. We've seen that. It's... uh... She should. Well, he didn't want her to work.
1: Which is a recurring theme.
5: <laughs> there is a recurring theme.
1: Full <laughs> sad. Yeah, you, you, all, you yeah. marry an actress and you immediately make her get out of the business right in the prime of her, you know, the, the age when she could be most successful.
5: Yeah, I don't know why they do that. It's just, Well, I'm sure they feel threatened by it, but you're marrying them because of who they are. And you're taking that away from them. I don't
1: know. Yeah, if it's, there's a, anything poignant in this, I feel that that, as a reflection of the time, you know, occurs in, in a number of these stories. I mean, Lynn Baggett's sort of like that. Uh, Karen Verne, who married Peter Laurie, um was was like that. A lot of them drop out of acting right when they should be capitalizing on it.
5: You know, Rosa Stradner. With, yeah. um, uh, John, Joseph, um John, Joseph
1: Mankiewicz's um
5: wife. Joseph Mankiewicz. It's... Yeah. Uh, and well, and again, she helped uh Rosa helped her husband with his screenplays. she asked for her opinion, but didn't he didn't want her to work, just wanted her to help him, which famously all about eve
1: so tell me yeah getting back to Mayo Metho, um oh. tell me how uh yeah, I mean it just how did that go with the the Bogarts?
5: well, you know what when i when i First, had this book. Everyone was like, you know, Mayo does not deserve to be in this book because she wasn't a hard luck lady. You know, uh, she she tortured Bogey. Yeah. She she treated him awful, and 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 she should not be in that book because she was not a nice person. She was probably too nice to him. I mean, he was punching her many times for no reason, and then that would start the whole thing where she would attack him. I mean, it was both of them. You know, he was an alcoholic. Let's let's be real. He was an alcoholic as well. No one really wants to say that because he's, you know, he's Humphrey Bogart. Right. You know, he's a big deal. He's he's a big star, and and we don't want to hear that he's, you know, he's beating up a, a woman. And also, you know, when she um, she knew that he was going to leave her for a younger woman, and he did, Lauren Bacall, and. Everybody at the time, this was 1944, 45, they were like so in love with Bogey and Bacall that they were like, why doesn't Mayo just divorce him so he can be with his true love? Yeah, <laughs> That's BS.
1: <laughs> they really seemed to have kind of a who's afraid of Virginia Woolf kind of relationship that had to <laughs> come to an end at some point.
5: Yeah, Well, it had to, I guess. It was too hot not to slow down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, when you finish one of these stories, do you just like go out in the sunshine and get ice cream, or how do you? Uh, <laughs> how do you deal with this?
5: Well, you know, I write. I write profiles every day. Um, some are nice, like Grace Bradley. I'm working on now. That's a nice one. So, I, I try to. I try to uh, mix it up a little bit, but I do write about every day. I research some actor or actress, B-movie, uh, usually, uh, and I maybe uh, walk around a little bit and then go at it again. I guess I've been doing it too long or something. I, I did kind of feel really kind of depressed after this book, but there was like 23 in a row that I did, so... Right.
1: So do you think the, the lesson of your book is you don't want to be a movie star after all? Or how do you... What's, what socially redeeming value are we getting from, from these stories?
5: I guess you've got to be careful of men. I don't <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hollywood's Hard Luck Ladies, 23 Actresses Who Suffered Early Deaths, Accidents, Missteps, Illnesses, and Tragedies, by Laura Wagner, is out now from McFarland. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Donald Soson, Alicia Svigels, Chris Yogurst, and Laura Wagner. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.